Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you're here. You're quiet, so I guess that means it's time to start. Appreciate you joining us, those of you who are here in person and those who are catching us online. So thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, when we were praying before the services today, uh, there was a scripture that was read that talked about one generation praising and telling God's works for the next generation. And I feel like that's a big part of what we're doing in our worship today is that we are uh, commending God's works to the next generation. So would you stand and we'll worship him together this morning?
Thank you for praising the Lord for who he is and his mighty works. Let's keep praising and commending his works to the next generation.
God, we do praise you this morning as the one who was and who is and who is to come. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you do. And we, we do want to be a church, Lord. We do want to be your family who stands in your power. So God, we pray you be glorified in all these things, that we would live and grow and abide in you, our vine, that God, we would live and stand in your power till you return or till you call us home. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Actually, would you stay standing for the reading of our scripture? Just see. Good morning. Today's reading is from John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Morning, Redemption. How are you? Good to see you all. Um, how many of you, like me, are a little frustrated with wearing masks in um, the grocery store, especially in the produce department where when, when you have to open those plastic bags, you really need to lick your fingers and suddenly it's very difficult. It's so frustrating. These are the major frustrations that I have in my life. It's just so awful. Anyway, glad you're here. My name is Frank. If you're new, I'm the, uh, one of the pastors here. I'm usually the one who's up here maybe 35 times, um, 35 Sundays out of the year. Um, this is kind of my primary calling uh, around here, but I do a lot of other stuff as well. Um, we're part of Redemption Church. If you're not familiar with Redemption Church, we're one church with nine congregations, soon to be ten, in Arizona. And uh, we're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, certainly with the uh, whole pandemic thing happening, and now uh, as we've been starting to regather, uh, we've, for a while we've been calling this a slow roll. Now we're saying we're regathering responsibly because... The slow roll has been gaining momentum, and um, uh, cases are down for the time being, and, and so we're working very hard at making sure that we're doing things responsibly, like continuing with the masks and um, spacing out the chairs. We don't have anywhere near the number of chairs that we could have in this sanctuary that we used to have in this sanctuary, 
Uh, so we're trying to make sure that we do uh, all of that really well. But it's also um, uh, uh, sort of, we've had to take a different approach to a lot of the things that we're doing in ministry as well. And so there's some confusion about, uh, understandably, about if things have started back up again and ha what hasn't. And like we've started the Monday morning men's Bible study again. Uh, I'll talk about this in a second. We've restarted student ministry again. We still haven't started uh, um, children's ministry on Sundays, although we're very, very close. I'm glad to report that we're very close. That's coming possibly as soon as next week. So um, our mantra right now is that this is what we're doing for now. And that for now should give you a clue that things could change as soon as next week. So you need to be, if you're not on our email list, if you're not following us on social media, if you're uh, not looking at our website, you really should be doing those things to remain updated on, on things that we're doing. We're having a lot of Wednesday night um, classes again. In fact, we're going to be going at least all the way through October with a, just a, a slew of different Wednesday night classes. We started last Wednesday night with parenting, and uh, we have, uh, all of these, by the way, are being live streamed as well, which is really helpful. So you can come in person or just watch it at home, but all of this is designed to uh, just help us uh, through this time. So everything's kind of a slow roll, but it's gaining momentum, and so now we're saying we're doing it responsibly. Um, we've also, because of the pandemic, we've also had to sort of rearrange how we do Sunday services. And so we, if you remember, if you were around before the pandemic started, we used to have a, a service host, and we'd do all of life interviews, and we've really cut back for, for now on a lot of that stuff. And so that means that I get to do all the announcements before we start our sermon. So I do have a few announcements for you. And here's the first one. Again, because of the pandemic, uh, we haven't been able to do baptisms on our campus since um, you know, the end of February. And so uh, I have a, a friend who attends here. Uh, he's been attending here for the last year. He's a third-year law student at ASU, which means he's eligible to go to church because he's an ASU student. Anyway, um, it's a shot at Tucson, of course. But um, at any rate, um, uh, he, we were talking one day, and he said, you know, I, I need to be baptized. When are you going to be able to do baptisms and again? I said, we can do baptisms right now. We just need to find somebody with a pool. And so we had a baptism service, a small one, on Monday afternoon for Ryan Murphy, and I've got pictures from it. It was a great celebration. Um, so there we are. We've just gotten into the pool. Um, go ahead. Yeah, there we go. He's about to go under now. Um, we told him that we hold him under five seconds for every sin he's committed. So it was a long service. Um, so anyway, and his, the reason we did it when we did it is because his parents were in town for his birthday last weekend. So he actually asked me about four weeks ago, and, then, and, he, and I said, well, I want to have your parents there. And he said, so do I. So that's when we uh, did it. So if you or anyone you know would like to be baptized and you're thinking we've kind of put a hold on that, we haven't. We'll find somebody with a pool and we'll have a little service there. And it was a lot of fun. There were a few of his friends from the church who came. He's part of an RC here. Um, and it was really a great time. Uh, I mentioned student ministry. Trey has restarted student ministry, again, with all kinds of proper guidelines. By that, I mean um, middle school and high school uh, students. Um, he did ask me to mention, and this rolls into our other, um, our other announcement today, uh, the students today, they're not going to gather today, but rather he wants them to help and be around for the Hope Women's Center collection that we're doing that's going to start right after this service. So if you remember, we're collecting for the Hope Women's Center uh, for an hour at, right after this service. You drive in, drop your stuff off, grab your lunch, and you can 
hang out and eat. Uh, the pastors will be available if you want to talk to anybody or pray. Um, we'll be masked up for that. And, um, uh, or you can just drive through, drop off, grab your lunch, and go somewhere else. That's, and it's Bruce Brown is the one who is putting together this um, sack lunch, so it'll be somewhat decent, I, I assure you. I love his food. So I think that's all the announcements that we have for right now. So let me pray, and we'll get into uh, John chapter 2. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for uh, your word and its truth, and we thank you that you have preserved it um, till the end of the ages, and that it's something that we can... Uh, open up and read and study and begin to understand and that we can come back to time and time again to gain even deeper understanding and application for our lives, but ultimately uh, that it points to your son as the Savior, the Messiah, as God. And so we thank you for that. And as we uh, look at this passage about the wedding at Cana and Jesus turning the water into wine, uh, as, as usual, I just pray that whatever is said this morning, that your Holy Spirit would carry what is needed to the hearts and minds of our people, to your, for your people, and that whatever I'm saying that's superfluous or off-topic or not needed, that your Holy Spirit would dim that uh, and reduce that in importance. And, and God, we, uh, we know your Spirit is here. My prayer is that we would welcome your Spirit to, to let him do his work um, as your your encourager, your advocate this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, talk about weddings. Wedding at Cana. I've done a, I've done a lot of weddings. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I've been a pastor for 21 years now. The church I was at before, the demographic wasn't quite as young as Redemption Arcadia, but I still did quite a number of weddings over there. But almost nine years ago, since coming over here, that has accelerated. I'm up to now uh, more than 450 weddings that I've officiated, and I've done premarital counseling for actually more than 500 couples who have gotten married elsewhere and had somebody else officiate it. And I will tell you, um, almost every message I talk about Tom, our founding pastor, this is the only time I'm going to talk about him this morning, and it's actually something that he and I don't agree on. So um, one of the few things, um, Tom... And he readily confessed this publicly. He never really liked to do weddings. He just didn't, didn't care for them. Um, he would often try to get the other pastors at East Valley or Redemption Gilbert to, to do them. I think he did his daughter's weddings. I think they kind of roped him into doing those. But other than that, he loved funerals. He would rather do funerals. I, I love doing weddings. I like doing funerals too, but I actually I love doing weddings. Um, and I think... Part of it is it's a privilege and an honor to be asked into something as important as that by a couple and many times their family. It's just an incredible privilege and honor and the memories that it's produced for me in ministry and the ministry that I've been allowed to do it do through weddings. And that includes all the premarital and getting to know people at a deeper level and and all of that, it, it really is a, a tremendous privilege and honor. When people ask me to talk about my greatest moments in ministry, often I will talk about various wedding experiences. It really is a lot of fun. But as such, because I've done a lot of them, I will tell you, I've worked with, I've worked with a ton of wedding coordinators. I've worked with vendors. I've worked with DJs. And I've worked with venues, wedding venues. Um, not very many people actually get uh, married in churches anymore. They go to venues. Um, 
And, and, and I've even, I will tell you, I've even acted as a wedding coordinator in the absence of one. If for whatever reason there isn't a wedding coordinator, uh, that kind of falls to me. And I'll, I'm, I, now, 20 years ago, I had no idea what I was doing. But now it's like I, I can kind of do that. I'm not going to necessarily uh, spend weeks contacting vendors beforehand. But the day of, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty organized with all of that. Um, and so as a result, I've also worked very closely with brides, naturally. And the occasional groom, I would even say the rare groom who wants to be involved. I, here's the thing. Grooms, they want the answer to two questions. Where and when. That's it. That's it, okay, generally speaking. But occasionally a groom. Uh, so brides, occasional groom. And I've worked with mothers of the bride. Um, and, in, <laughs> and in all of my weddings and receptions, I've never experienced anything like this first century wedding in Cana. Nor have I ever experienced something, as, as I've learned over the years, nor have I experienced anything like a present-day Middle Eastern wedding. Because they're pretty much the same as they were 2,000 years ago. The weddings I'm a part of, and I'm talking about, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the ceremony an hour before, at least an hour before, to make sure I'm connected with everybody that I need to be connected with. Then you have the ceremony, then you have you know, the pictures after, which is the cocktail hour, and then you have a dinner and the dessert. If the, all of that, if I'm there for four hours, that's a long time, four hours. In our context, that is a long time. Some of you remember Ali. Do you all remember, anybody, a few of you, I know, remember Ali. So Ali was a, uh, is a, was a refugee from Afghanistan who ended up here. And um, not, if you're not sure now, you'll really remember him. He, he lost part of his leg um, because uh, he stepped on a mine that the Taliban had planted. His story is amazing. He um, actually walked across Afghanistan in order to be able to leave Afghanistan on a handmade crutch on a, on, with one leg because his leg had been blown off by this mine. Um, he landed here in Phoenix, became a part of our congregation, was here five years or so, then got a job in Colorado, moved up there, met a woman, they got married, uh, Josh Prather went and did uh, the wedding, um, all of that. Uh, I remember when he was here one night, he invited a bunch of us over for dinner. He was going to make us a tr tr traditional Afghanistan dinner, which was delicious, and then he wanted to show us video of a friend of his from Afghanistan who had a wedding. And he had eight hours of video to show us, and he said that doesn't even scratch the surface of the total amount of video that they had from this event. And I will tell you that I, I, I lasted about 45 minutes of the, that's about, yeah, I gotta go, but, um, but just, it's just, it's a total, like, days-long cel celebration. It's amazing. At, at Paradise Valley Community College, uh, where I'm an adjunct instructor of communication, I often have students in my class from the Middle East who will give their informative speech on the wedding tradition of their country and their family. And again, it's the same thing. They, they, they don't understand our context. They don't understand our weddings. Everything there will stop for days. Just absolutely stop. And everybody's together, and it's a celebration. Morning, noon, and night, you got to figure out a place for people to sleep. And there's hundreds of people that will come to these things. I, you, we think we know how to celebrate. We don't know anything about celebrating. We don't know anything. So there are six miracles in the Gospel of John 
that he records that are not recorded in any of the other Gospels. And turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana is one of those six miracles. It's not recorded anywhere else, and it's the first one. And this 12-verse passage wraps up what we will call the introduction, what we have been calling the introduction to the Gospel of John. So John says also, later on in this passage, he says that this water into wine sign or miracle, he says this is the first of his signs, meaning the first of Jesus' life. We need to understand that. This is the first of Jesus' signs. So contrary to what some of us may have heard or even read under the guise of the hidden stories of young Jesus. Has anybody ever run into this? Okay, there are these hidden stories of young Jesus. Contrary to that, what Scripture tells us is that Jesus did not win all of his high school basketball games in spite of his lack of athletic prowess, and Jesus did not resurrect every dead bird that this have as, as many people as possible at the wedding. And, and I don't know, perhaps weddings were a little bit less expensive in the first century, like before quantitative easing and all that stuff. But wedding vendors everywhere today, I know, like this idea of beefing up the wedding list, the guest list. You know, more cake, more food, more liquor, more flowers, more bridal gifts, more fancy clothing, more DJs. They would love that. Now, I, I know many of you likely know this, but it's a good reminder and something we need to think about. But not only was it a great honor to attend the wedding, but also weddings, not just the ceremony, but including the receptions and all the, everything that goes on beforehand, in their context, this didn't last three or four hours. This, this lasted not even three or four days. This was usually a week-long event. And they went hard for all week long. Uh, and they had to gather all of these people. And it would be considered a great dishonor if the host of the wedding ran out of anything but especially if the host ran out of the wine. That was the greatest dishonor you could experience as a wedding host was to run out of wine, which is what happens at this wedding. We need to understand their context. Also, um, you might think, well, did they want the wine to keep everybody drunk? And that's actually not what it was. It's not that the wine was needed for drunkenness. In fact, drunkenness wasn't even the goal of the wine. But in their Jewish context, wine, read your history, wine was a symbol of blessing, it was a symbol of joy, and it was an image, it was a sign of when God would redeem and restore his creation to the Garden of Eden before it was corrupted by sin. So if you read the Old Testament prophets, occasionally you'll come across a passage also in the Psalms where uh, they talk about when God comes to redeem uh, uh, his creation and redeem his people, it's like the wine vats being opened and, and the wine is flowing like a river. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful image of the restoration of creation because it's been sullied and corrupted by sin. Drunkenness, it happened, but it was actually kind of frowned upon. But the joy and the blessing and the redemption of God, which in their culture the wine represents, was important to any Jewish celebration. That's why there was always wine there. That's why it was so important. And that's why the host would feel great shame by running out of wine. They would have been embarrassed by this. So, Jesus to the rescue. We'll look at verses 3 through 5. This is what's on Jesus' mother's mind. So Mary comes in. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I hope you understand there's a subtext, a text behind the text to that 
that declaration, they have no wine. She's not just making an observation to Jesus. She's saying to him, they have no wine. Go and do something about this. You're going to be the Messiah. You could fix this like this, okay? That's what she's saying to him. And Jesus knows that's what she's saying. Because he said, he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, you read this and you go, okay, I feel like I'm missing something. There must be some coded language here. In their context, they would have understood it. But yes, we're, we're probably missing a lot of what's going on here. We're not on the inside of the discussion. So what's going on? First of all, if it feels to you like there's some tension between Jesus and his mother, your inclination would be right. Your instinct is right. There is some tension. But it's not, as we might suspect, from him calling her woman. Isn't that strange? Woman. Okay, my, my whole life, when my mother was alive, I never addressed her as woman. That just would have been weird and awkward, and she would have said, stop that, you know? It just would have been weird, okay? We look at that and think, that was actually really common in their context. That's not where the tension comes, but the tension is in the terseness and the abruptness and the brevity of the rest of the conversation. There is something going on between Jesus and his mother kind of behind the text, that becomes apparent as you begin to study. The tension comes from that terseness. And, and part of it is Jesus was actually kind of having one of his fully human moments at that time. You know, he, he was being pushed by his mother to do something that he knew was coming, but he wasn't sure if he was quite ready in his humanness. His mother wanted him to do the Messiah thing, to help the host with the shame of running out of the wine. But Jesus knows, and it's clearly borne out in every single gospel, as well as the gospel of John, especially in the gospel of John, that once he starts down this path of his public ministry, it's going to be brutal for him. He knows that. And of course it was. I mean, once Jesus' public ministry began, a lot of the professional religious people around just wanted him executed. Right out of the gate, they just, this guy's not on our program, we need to have him eliminated. And so, it not, not nearly the impact, not nearly as, as obvious as the tension in the Garden of Gethsemane three years ago, the night before Jesus gets crucified, but it's a little bit similar to that. He's feeling the load of him becoming the Messiah and what he has to do. He knows that once he starts his ministry, his happy days of obscurity and carpentry, they are over. And he's going to have three years of a very difficult road to travel. And even in verse 12, we'll see that this tension pushes him for the rest of his ministry. He's constantly on the move. He constantly has to move away from whatever it is that is not helping his ministry. And the tension is actually twofold. We know that there are professional religious people that would like to have him killed, but the tension also comes from the vast numbers of people who don't care about whether or not he's the Messiah, but only care about him fulfilling their wishes and, their, and desires. So they're following him for the bread. They're following him for the wine. They're following him for the miracles, but for nothing else. In other words, Jesus in his life of ministry had no middle ground. There was never a time when somebody just came up and said, hey, let's go just grab a cup of coffee and talk about the NHL playoffs or something. There was none of that for Jesus. He had to break away in secrecy just to be able to go and pray alone in order to be able to handle all of this tension. In other words, these people that would come to him who didn't want to kill him, um, but they were willing to listen to his teaching if there was a tangible 
material pay payoff at the end. I, I, this is the only thing I could think of that's kind of similar. It's like when you and I are willing to go out of town for a free weekend and we know we're going to have to listen to a one-hour pitch on a, on a timeshare. And we know going in we're going to say no, and then some of you are like, yeah, I wasn't going to say no, and then somehow, next thing you know, I was signing the paper. But anyway, you want the free weekend, but you, you're not interested in signing up. It's, it's kind of like that. This is something we really need to understand about that. A lot of people think anybody who came in contact with Jesus, they, just, they were saved and they followed him and that was it. That's not true. The vast majority of people in the Gospels who saw or even participated in his miracles, who listened to his teaching for hours, the vast majority of them ended up walking away and looking for something else. Not a small majority, the vast majority of them walked away from Jesus because they wanted something temporal and they didn't understand his eternal nature and that he is the Lord God and the Savior of everything. We see that in the gospel many times. And in verse 5, we see Mary resigning herself to the fact that Jesus, here you go, this is important for us too, Jesus will do whatever Jesus will do, whenever Jesus will do it, and however Jesus will do it. There's a great lesson in there for us as well. We need to be like Mary in this respect. Far too often we want Jesus on our schedule and on our agenda rather than adapting and adopting Jesus' agenda and schedule to our lives. One last little thing about this. This is also Jesus reminding Mary that although she is his mother and he loves her and cares for her and respects her, he only listens to one voice, and that is his father. And that's not Joseph, that's the Lord God his Father who is in heaven. This 12-verse narrative right at the front of John's gospel reminds us that Jesus is on no one's schedule but the divine schedule that his holy heavenly Father has called him to. So you get to verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are the jars that are going to be filled with the water that Jesus is going to turn into wine. But these jars were for purification rites. So what does that mean? Well, the primary purification rite for Jews in that context would be washing of hands. Even if their hands, it wasn't always a hygiene issue, even if their hands weren't dirty, they would wash their hands several times a day because it was a purification rite. It was a, it was a picture of God cleansing them from sin. It was a religious rite. So in the first century, there was lots and lots and lots of repeated hand washing. Isn't it funny how some things come full circle? Now in the 21st century, we are washing our hands repeatedly all day long. Some of us are. Anyway, I, my hands have never been so dried and cracked and itchy as they have been the last six months. And even the best, CB, I shouldn't say that, even the best and most expensive hand lotion that I can find will not help me in this. But also, the water was used for the ritual washing of cups and plates that you would use to eat and drink out of. So they would need a lot of this water because there's a lot of hand washing, but also they're continually washing the cups and uh, the plates. And it is true, I read this on several different places, um, sometimes people would Rather than waiting around for somebody to pour the water on their hands, they'd just walk up to the jugs and they would stick their hands in. That's kind of gross, right? But the good news is they'd only stick them in up to their wrists. They wouldn't go all the way to their shoulders, so that's some good news. But again, very subtle. When you get to 7 and 8 and he fills the water with, with wine and, and turns it into um, 
it turns it into, uh, fills the water with the jugs with water and turns it into wine, we find that these jars, these jugs were actually consecrated. That means that even the jugs, the jars, were set apart religiously for purification rites. Water to the first century Jew represents cleansing of sins. But Jesus wanted the host not to lose honor. And having an opportunity to foreshadow the coming restoration of all creation, which has been corrupted by sin, he decides correctly to ignore the primary use of these jars. He's now going to fill them with wine so that the party can continue. When Jesus comes into our life as Lord and Savior, we should be willing and prepared for him to ignore some of the things that you and I think are important and, have, and that we have set apart in our lives as important. He might ignore those things. He also might want you to give them up and try to redeem those things too. How many of us have come to Christ and we think we've come fully, but actually there's a few things over here that we're going to set apart and we'll, we'll handle these things here, Jesus. We haven't really given him everything. He's going to ignore some things that, are, that we think are really important. He's going to maybe ignore our power or our status or our wealth or our agenda or our time. And he's going to rearrange a lot of that in our lives and use it for his purpose. Again, not our agenda, not my agenda, but Jesus' agenda. But if you do the math with these jars, that's another 120 to 180 gallons of wine. This is some party that's going on here. Um, that's quite a bit. By the way, archaeologists have actually found first century uh, water jars, stone water jars in that area around Cana that could have, I don't know, could have been the jars. That's what they, that's what they look like there. Pretty cool. And then you read verse 8. This is interesting to me. So you get to verse 8. Jesus now has the jars filled with wine. And he said to the servants, Now draw some of the wine out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to the master of the feast. It's funny. You have the host and you have the master of the feast. Sometimes the host, the host would probably be the father of the bride. Sometimes the host would act as the master of the feast or the master of ceremonies, but very often in their context, get this, they would hire an outside master of the feast in order to coordinate everything all week long. My brothers and sisters, wedding coordinators are biblical. You need to understand that. I'm not going to spring for a wedding coordinator, but mom, they're biblical. Okay, so there's your argument, all right? Then verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. See, and you all thought clever deception was only something that started happening in the 20th and 21st centuries. Human beings have always been deceptive about all this stuff that you think is new deception today. You know, get them drinking, maybe they'll get a little mellow, and I'll explain why that helps, because then you can give them the cheap stuff later, the two-buck chuck, as I've heard it called, okay? 
You can give them the cheap stuff later and they won't know the difference, okay? So uh, contextualize this for us today. In Arcadia, it would be like going to a Super Bowl party and uh, during the first and second quarters, they're serving the locally crafted beer and then like about the middle of the third quarter, they start breaking out the Bud Light. That's kind of how that would work out for us here, okay? But here's what's interesting. It is a, fa a physiological fact that uh, drinking alcohol will dull your senses, including your taste of uh, smell and your taste of uh, your sense of smell and your sense of taste. Okay, it'll dull the senses. Even after just a 12-ounce beer, um, a six-ounce glass of wine, you may not really be feeling any sort of buzz, but it's already starting to dull your senses. You may not notice. So, it's not just that you shouldn't drink and drive. You really shouldn't drink and eat because you're not going to enjoy the food as much either. By the way, as your pastor, let me offer you a couple of other really good pieces, really good pieces of advice. Don't drink and text. That's not good. And here you go. Don't drink and post on social media. That's really bad, okay? That's wonderful advice from your pastor, I am, I'm telling you, okay? And ironically, ironically, the most common way to cheapen the wine that most feastmasters would do at a wedding is they would just simply add more water to the wine. They just added water. They would water it down. And think about this. Again, large part, maybe there's 400 people there. Even in first century uh, Mediterranean life, either they're there for seven days. You might be looking for ways to cut on costs. Uh, year, years ago, I was in the restaurant business <clears throat> for a couple of years, and I had a friend who was so concerned, this is how concerned he was about food costs in his restaurant, that he would take the time to water down his restaurant's ketchup bottles with vinegar to make the ketchup go farther. So he'd be back there pouring little amounts of vinegar into these ketchup bottles and shaking it and then sending these ketchup bottles out because it would drive him crazy to see uh, the busters bringing plates back um, in, into the, dish, uh, the dishwashing area with big globs of ketchup on there. It just drove him crazy. So he said, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get that. Okay? Think about this now. We humans, we water down a lot of stuff, don't we? And I'm not talking about food and wine and liquor, the short pour at the bar. I'm not talking about that. We water down really important stuff. We water down truth. We water down scripture all the time. We water down our own sin. And when we do that, we cheapen it. We have cheapened truth. We've cheapened scripture. We've cheapened, we've cheapened the gospel. We cheapen things when we do that. Here you go. We've watered down sex. We have watered down gender. We cheapen those things when we water them down. And that's tragic. There is nothing watered down about Jesus. And Jesus gives us everything to stop the watering down in our lives. Jesus is 100% truth, 100% grace. Nothing watered down about him. And the salvation that he gives us is pure and whole, just like him. There's nothing watered down. Can you imagine trying to water down the cross? People try it. People do it. Scholars come out and say this is what really happened at the cross, and it's nothing like what the Gospels explain to us, nothing like what uh, the Apostle Paul explains to us that happens at the cross. And then you get to verse 11. This was the first of Jesus' signs. He did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory, and the disciples believe in him. 
So here, here's what we need to understand. This is the first of his sign. This was not about the wine. This was about new life. This was about restoration of the Garden of Eden. It was a sign, a picture, an image of God restoring his creation. In the new Jerusalem, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes again. It's about the resurrection of you and me. This is not about the wine. Remember, Jesus, I talked about this earlier in this series. A lot of the prophets, they wanted judgment on God's people. And that's because God told them judgment is coming, rightfully so. But I imagine that a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, might come and turn the water into sewage as a punishment for their sin, those who are at the wedding. But Jesus doesn't do that. He turns the water into wine. This is the image of the restoration of creation. It's, it's everything. It's everything. He turned it into wine, and he turned it into good wine in order to point people to his resurrection, his restoration, and his redemption of the Savior. And that's why we have that line in there about this being Jesus' glory is manifested. His glory isn't in the temporal miracle of getting water turned into wine. His glory, his joy, his purpose is in the redemption and restoration of sinners and all creation. That is glory. And the disciples believed. And the disciples believed not because of the new wine, but because of the message of the new wine. They saw the connection there. See, you and I, as Christians, we're not called to testify to Jesus' miracles. A lot of us get caught in that trap. We're called to testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he is the one who saves and redeems. That's what we're called to testify to. Now, we may talk about the miracles and the signs as a way to point to that reality, but we're not called to defend the miracles and the signs, and a lot of us get, get kind of stuck in that trap. We're trying to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, and his miracles are a sign of that truth. We need to understand that. The message is not what Jesus did, but who he is. It's not his ability to restock the wine at a party. But because of who he is, he then can save us and transform us. Jesus is God. It's who he is. He's come in the flesh. He fulfilled the law. He gave sinners salvation, and he gave meaning to his word. Have you come to Jesus? It's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. Have you come to Jesus? And we have a, a, a sort of a, an epilogue to this. We, we, we talked about whether 12 would go with next week or this week. We decided to do it with this week. Sort of a last word on this narrative. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Capernaum is, again, another 16 miles east of Cana, and it's by, right by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did a lot of his ministry in and around that uh, western uh, bank of, of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit on the eastern side as well. But why did they move so quickly after they, he turned the water into wine? This, he moved pretty quickly out of there. And the reason was because he needed to get out of there, because he knew that people were going to start coming to him for the wrong reasons. See, people would rather have wine than life. People would rather look at the Messiah, think about what their idols and their false gods are and how the Messiah might be able to help them with their false gods. And, their, and I don't mean to get rid of them, but to 
expand on their false gods and idols, and that's what they wanted from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm about. I know you want the bread. I know you want the wine. I know you want to be able to see again and walk again. But ultimately, what I'm here for is eternal life. This is, this is why I mentioned Jesus' reticence to start his public ministry. It's because people in the first century, they were fickle, they were stubborn, and they were self-centered consumers, kind of like today. But Jesus crushes our consumerism and our self-centeredness at the cross. And now, with the end of this gospel introduction, we're going to see that message played out the rest of the way in this gospel, week after week after week for the next 45 or 50 weeks that we'll be in this gospel. So let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you again for your word and its truth, and we thank you for Jesus' incredible ministry. And God, I pray that we would, uh, we would understand who he is, first and foremost, so that then we can receive what it is that he does. Let us understand who he is so that we can receive what he does. Help us to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you're watching on the live stream, we hope you have the elements prepared. If not, head out and get those elements prepared right now. And we have our elements here. Again, still we're sticking with, for now, the individual uh, packaged elements. That last night, before he went and prayed in the garden, Jesus was at what we now call the Last Supper. And it was a traditional supper in their context, but he changed the protocol of the supper, which if you had been there and, and been in that context and understood what he was doing, it would have been quite shocking what he was doing. But he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had eaten... He then took the cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And we call this communion, the Lord's Supper. And Paul comes along later and he says, and as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. When we do this, we're confessing that we're sinners. We're confessing that we need a Savior. We're confessing that we have accepted Jesus as our Savior. And we are celebrating his new life in us. We are celebrating new wine when we do this. So let's do that now.
Center uh, fundraiser drive is about to begin. If you would exit out the doors opposite of where you came in and you're, uh, they're ready for you to drive through and uh, participate in that fundraiser. But let me read for you this scripture as our benediction this morning out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. God bless.